Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors Show. Today, I am sitting down with Mark Levy. He is the chairman and CEO of Norsmart Mining. And he's someone I'm really excited to talk to. He is uh, a, a serial investor, if you will call it that. He's had multiple, multiple exits. I think a billion dollars in mining company ex, um, exits, which is just amazing. Of course, you already know, I love to learn from other people. I believe that success leaves clues. So I'm excited to sit down with you, Mark, today and see what we can learn from you. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. Yeah. So, um, man, when I was reading through your, your uh, bio and, and just the exits that you had, I mean, just what an amazing track record. Um, definitely someone that I know we can learn a lot from. So I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, but for those that haven't really dug into you or haven't read your bio, which I'm sure is a lot of people haven't, um, give us a breakdown kind of, of, of what you've done. Some of the, some of the big wins, I guess. Sure. Um, I, I mean, I started out, I, I guess, uh, back in the tech sector in the early days and we helped build out, uh, I guess, when the internet was starting to get exciting and we built one of the largest internet service providers in Canada. We took a $20 million company to 1.9 billion and I worked for a billionaire. So it was kind of nice to mentor from someone with that kind of uh, expertise, knowledge and experience. And uh, so we rode that for a little while and into, I guess, the tech crash of 2001 and sideways 2003. And uh, based on my, uh, the mentors I had and one of the tech guys I worked for was actually a mining guy as well. And he kind of opened my eyes to the mining sector a little bit in 03. And uh, I built out a team and decided to take control of a, a mining company and uh, build my own company and got involved in the mining sector in late 03, early 04. And uh, I founded a company called Norsemont Mining, which... We label it Norismon 1.0, um, and we did a we did a large deal with a company called Rio Tinto, lar- one of the largest mining companies in the world. We bought a copper deposit from them, and we took it to feasibility and sold that for 520 million to Hud Bay Minerals uh, in 2011. Um, so from, from, that, a, from a from a million to 520 million to 520 million. So we did pretty good. Our investors made a lot of money. It was a great exit at the peak. Um, Good asset. Over 2 billion has gone into the asset by HUD Bay to put it in production. One of the largest copper deposits going to production in the world, you know, top 20. Um, And through that, we also saw their opportunities and we tried to acquire a company that was similar to ours uh, out of Panama called Pedakia Minerals, which had a very large copper deposit. And uh, we couldn't come to terms with the CEO and the chairman to buy the company. So we ended up, myself and my team, taking a big stake in Pedakia. And then we instituted, so our director went on the board, my CFO, we took a bit, bit of control of it. And we ended up selling that company for $350 million to InMet Mining, another large mining company. Um, so that was another exit that we had in 2011. And uh, we also invested in a coal Coal, uh, coal company called Coal Hunter, uh, which acquired some assets in Canada, and we sold that off to Cardero Group for about fifty-seven million. And another company I was a chair of and founder was called Rio Silver. It was a silver deposit in uh, Peru, which we sold off as well. So we exited um, about nine hundred fifty million of mining companies in two thousand eleven, and I think that was kind of towards the end of the mining cycle. And uh, then we, we kind of 
went off looking at other opportunities and uh, we, we ventured into uh, oil and gas a little bit. Uh, we looked at the crypto space. Obviously that was quite an exciting space. And because of my background in tech, it made sense. And we took some private investments in uh, some crypto exchanges and, I had the opportunity to meet with uh, Vitalik Buterin, who's the founder of uh, Ethereum, and missed out on being in a partner in that. Um, but we got uh, quickly distracted with the cannabis sector, and we, we learned a lot about cannabis, and uh, we did some research, and we saw that's kind of, you know, our generation, probably yours and mine, our generation of, of, uh, of uh, you know, our, our parents may have had the experience of alcohol becoming legal. And for us, that was our prohibition is cannabis. And so we got very involved and, and did a lot of research. And um, I'm one of the three founders that put together and took public and funded a company called Aurora Cannabis. It was one of the larger cannabis companies in the world. And uh, our investors that got in very early alongside us did incredibly well. Um, there was a big opportunity. I mean, we, we, we rolled that up to about a $16 billion market cap and now it's unfortunately trading down at around a billion and change. So, um, you know, the whole sector is corrected, but we did get involved in also uh, one of my shells. We took public uh, cure relief, which was one of the largest IPOs uh, in the cannabis sector. And we got involved in a several other U S uh, cannabis plays and uh, we liked the sector. Uh, we thought there was opportunity there, but maybe things moved a little too quick. And um, about a year ago, we rebuilt our mining team and stepped back into the mining sector, thinking that we need exposure to precious metals and, and metals. And uh, mining sector had been dead for almost a decade here, and it was time to uh, see a comeback. And then there was obviously some economic drivers that uh, we'll talk about, I'm sure. Yeah. Wow. What a, what a career you've had. That's just, that's just so amazing. Uh, what I love is a couple things. One, how you've been able to kind of move from company to company and, and they're in different industries. So you went from tech into a copper mine. So, um, you kind of jumped into a space you didn't really know a lot about. Exactly. And, uh, you jumped in with both feet. Um, you talked about like assembling a team. Um, and then you talk about, um, kind of taking your team from project to project. Is that kind of how it works? Like you've, you've got the right people and now you've just kind of continued to duplicate success with them. Yeah. So, I mean, we've got from, from a technical perspective in mining, um, we've built out a really good team. And I, like you said, I jumped into copper. Um, there was an article written about me. What does a tech guy know about mining? Um, and, and I, and I, the only way to learn is to surround yourself with experts. And so we surround, I surrounded myself with, with the uh, top notch experts in the world and in Canada in the copper space and engineers, geologists learn from them. And, uh, like a sponge, I soaked up everything there is about copper to the point where when I do presentations to large funds out of Europe, they, they would argue is, are you a geologist or an engineer? And I would have to kind of say, well, after you make the investment, I'll, I'll give you the answer to your question. Cause I wouldn't want to insult their <laughs> intelligence and let them know, well, I was coached by really good engineers and geologists, but I'm really not. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, we, I've surrounded myself with a great team in, in, in the mining sector. And then we have our own internal team here that I've worked with, which we call our family, um, where some of my partners, we've co-invested in each other's ventures along the way uh, as well. So we were well capitalized internally. And then, of course, we've got externally uh, all these teams we work with over the years in the mining sector that we've reassembled now. 
Um, and we also have teams from the tech sector that we work with. Now they become investors in our deals uh, because obviously they don't have the technical expertise in the, in the, from the resource sector perspective. Yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. Uh, it, anybody who's been watching this channel knows when I, I dig in, I believe success leaves clues. And one thing I look for at other, other companies, specifically when I was really analyzing a lot of crypto um, companies as they're coming up um, and, and gold miners today is I always look for the team. I always, I've always said over and over that I don't believe a good team would go to a bad project, right? And so somebody with like a track record like yours, you've been able to duplicate success by kind of keeping that core team. Um, and so as an, as an outside investor for me, I think that's so important because like someone with your track record, I could imagine you would go to a bad company to try to ruin that track record, right? Yeah, no, um, that would make sense. So I invest with the team and I, I like that your philosophy is kind of the same that you're also investing with your team as well. Um, and I want to get into, um, I want to get into, obviously you were in cop tech, copper, um, silver, um, cannabis, and now you've rotated back into gold. I want to talk about the cycles and why you see that. Um, I want to talk about the project that you're working on right now. I want to learn a little bit about that. We'll, we'll get into maybe some other stuff like uranium and Bitcoin, but before we do, I want to just ask this question. Uh, I think a lot of investors that are listening to this might find this helpful. So you mentioned that, um, before Aurora, you had met, um, Vitalik Buterin from Ethereum, the developer of Ethereum, and you had a chance to invest into that company. Um, and it was kind of like, Hmm, Ethereum or can cannabis, right? And, um, you decided cannabis and you did amazing with it. I mean, you said yeah. it came from 16 billion down to eight or I'm sorry, down to one, but I mean, you took it from a million to a billion. So like, I mean, yeah. obviously like we got to focus on that. So one, um, it went to 16 and it's back to one. So that's tough, but also you missed out on the opportunity to miss, uh, go into Ethereum, which could have made billions over there. My question is, um, as an investor, how do you handle the mindset of that? Like, um, does that, does that eat away at you that you lost Ethereum? Does it eat away at you that Aurora went so high and has fallen back down? Or do you really stay focused on what you what you have? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm always thankful for what I have. I feel blessed and I feel that I'm lucky, uh, despite the fact, you know, we create our luck as well. We create our circumstances. Um, you know, it, it would be tough for me and, and, and to be dishonest with you and say, Hey, I don't regret, you know, not doing Ethereum because I would have made a billion dollars on Ethereum and probably would have another notch on my uh, bank account and would have been fun too. Cause I yeah. do like the crypto space and believe in it as, as you do. Uh, but you know, things happen for a reason and, uh, you know, I'm very thankful, you know, my investors in the end made money with me. That's my job. Ultimately, that, that's how I look at my work is to take people's money, invest it wisely alongside our team and create value and create a win for them. And so, you know, Aurora is a success cause we funded it, uh, at 10 cents at 25 cents, 85 cents, a dollar, it went to $16. So all my guys had the opportunity to create an exit make a lot of money. Um, yes, it's come off recently, but it traded, you know, more than any bank in Canada, Aurora. So it was a big win for all of us. Mm -hmm. Was it as big a win as, as uh, Vitalik and Ethereum would have been? Absolutely not. That, that would have been the bigger, the biggest win ever, but you know what? I'm a happy guy. I got two healthy kids. Um, you know, we do well, our investors do well and, and they're happy with our returns and they support us through thick and thin and, Ultimately, I'm just always thankful for what I have. I never, I'm never stressing for what I could have had. A lot of guys, you know, beat themselves up on, oh, well, I didn't get 
hundred percent off the table versus 50, but you know, I could have got $10 a share and I sold the company for eight. It's like, okay, well you get to reload and reinvest with your investors in a new deal. So, you know, we're always thankful. And, uh, ultimately we've had a good, um, good winning streak over the last, uh, 15 plus years, 16 years. And, uh, we've got good support from our investors and hopefully we can add to that. Um, and definitely, uh, yeah, it's not a, it's something I think about, but not, you know, of course you, you I'd lie to you if I don't regret it. Of course I would regret it, but you know what? We, yeah. everything was a learning experience and I love learning too. I knew nothing about cannabis. I don't smoke cannabis. Um, matter of fact, funny story is just to sidetrack us is, you know, somebody famous would come in the room and I'm with Terry and, and, uh, with our CEO and C president, uh, with Aurora and, uh, they, uh, Mark, uh, didn't you have that call? And I'm like, Oh, Q, I got to leave because he's going to pass something around that I'm not going to want to smoke. <laughs> and you'll think I'm a narc or something. So it's like somebody famous comes in, I get to meet them and it's like, okay, Mark, get the fuck out of here now. It's like, <laughs> you're not going to smoke it then leave the room. Yeah. So, but, but I learned so much about it medically is what drove me into the interest of cannabis, actually seeing what can be done for people and helping people, uh, versus traditional medicine. So it was yeah. a good, a good, great learning experience and definitely, uh, provided or broadened my horizons and a different perspective for cannabis than I did before I started. Yeah. I love, I love that. And I appreciate you sharing that. Just, uh, you know, I talk to so many people and I see so many comments where, um, you know, oh, I bought this asset and it only got up 50% and I missed this one that went up 200%. And I, and I see that all the time. And, uh, I just, I want people to have that perspective that you have, which is like, be grateful for what you have, right? Focus on, uh, that's how we have happiness in life. I think. So I love that. Um, and, and I think that's super helpful. Now, um, you went, you know, like I said, through all these different things, copper, silver, um, cannabis, and now you're pivoting back into gold. Um, and you seem to have these cycles kind of down in a sense where you were in tech through the boom. Um, then you got, you exited a billion dollars in 2011 in gold, which was the top of the last cycle for anybody who doesn't know. That's when we had the, the previous all time high it was in 2011. So perfect there. Um, obviously the, the, the cannabis thing, you got it right. Maybe stayed in a little bit long. Um, and now you're pivoting to gold. So I'm guessing you're kind of looking at these like big macroeconomic pictures and you're seeing this trend shape up. For sure. Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I, I can, I saw that unfortunately our governments were taking on a lot more debt than I think we can afford to handle. Uh, I see some uncertainties that were coming up earlier in the year and uh, you can see the price of gold was kind of inching up. And, and obviously we have a good team that's been around that starts to talk to me and say, Hey Mark, you should look at this project, look at that. And even in my own personal portfolio, I manage our, our family trust and our family's money. And uh, we invest in all the traditional, you know, the bank stocks, big tech. And I'm like, you know, I don't have any exposure to gold. And if things go sideways, I think gold's going to kind of shine here. And then obviously COVID hit and that kind of fast tracked. We were looking at assets late last year, in the first quarter of 2019. And then of course, first quarter of 2020, the whole world went upside down with COVID, which is exasperated things. And then obviously we stepped in with this gold project in Norismont, gold silver project. Uh, and uh, I think the gold bull market has started and you've got, you know, Bank of America making predictions of $3,000 gold, um, Sprott, all the big banks are all targeting three to $5,000 gold and 
bigger gains even on silver. Um, so I, I think, unfortunately, COVID has put you and I in a bad position for our children and maybe our grandchildren yeah. where the debt our countries have taken on has gone up nine or tenfold, which before they were kind of unmanageable. And now I can imagine at nine or tenfold, you know, it's beyond unmanageable now. So yeah. I think now you've got obviously a big flight to safety and hard assets. And that's where kind of things like crypto, like Bitcoin and silver and gold are seeing a lot of traction and seeing their, the price appreciation and a lot of news flow coming out. I mean, Warren Buffett, the guy that is Mr. Anti gold, never invests in gold. Yeah. Um, threw a big stake into a gold company. Um, you know, Eric Sprott, who is a big gold bug. Um, he just announced a billion and a half dollars that he's going to buy a silver, which is like, wow, that's hot off the presses. And he's been throwing money around in gold sector as well. And he's a, one of the smarter guys in the gold sector that we all know. So I think, you know, the gold bull market is definitely on. And I think we have a few good years for sure. And we wanted to participate with our investors and protect our investors by exposing them to gold and silver. Yeah. I've seen a lot of comments that say, you know, I wouldn't buy gold now. It's, it's, it just, it's at, it's at all time highs. And um, I just think that you're not really seeing the cycles, right? Because yes, it's at all time high, but it reached its previous all time high in 2011 at the top of a cycle. And now we're at all time high kind of at the beginning of a cycle. Um, right. Do you see the same thing? No, absolutely. And that's why you get conservative banks even putting out predictions of gold and they have to be very careful. Um, they're putting out predictions in the 2,500 to 3,500 range. So, you know, yeah, we're at an all time high, but it's not about where we're at today. It's where are we going? And with, right. you know, with what's going on in the world today, the debt that's been taken on, you know, there's some guys talking about 10 and $20,000 gold. Those people are pretty aggressive, maybe a little bit ahead of themselves, but can, can we see a 3000 to $5,000 gold price over the next three plus years? Absolutely. And you know, 90% of the banks say that. So, yeah. um, and that's where you're seeing big bets being made by smart money. I mean, Warren Buffett didn't step into gold when it was $1,200 last year. He was stepping into it this year, yeah. uh, near, near all time. And he's a pretty smart, shrewd investor. Um, so yeah, I, I think we're at, like you said, we're at the beginning of a cycle here. We have several years in this bull gold bull market, if not longer. Uh, and there's an opportunity to gain exposure through the physical asset or the equities, um, GLD, one of the ETFs. I mean, there's been $25 billion of flow in from institutions and funds. And these institutions are, you know, sitting on billions and billions of dollars. They got to place it. So they're starting to take exposure at these price points. Yeah. So the smart money is stepping in right now. Yeah. Just stepping in. I mean, it's really been the last 18 months that we've seen the activity and now the smart money is just kind of coming in. You mentioned uh, one thing that I, I, that was interesting. So you manage your own family money your your family office or whatever, and you had no exposure to gold. And now you're looked at like, Hey, the cycle's coming. We need to get some exposure to gold. Um, you mentioned Rick rule. Um, I think we were talking offline. Um, and you know, I, I was listening to Rick rule as well. And he said that traditionally we'd seen the institutions have about a, you know, one and a half, 2% allocation to gold, but right now it's down about half of a percent. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, um, just like you with no allocation to it, you know, most people have less than half a percent. And then we saw, um, obviously Warren Buffett, but then we saw the, um, Ohio 
uh, police and fire pension fund. So they're putting 5% towards gold. And you know, what happens is once one of them does it, then they all start jumping in and there's not enough gold for the 5% allocation for everyone. Correct. Um, yeah, it's definitely going to create a little bit of, uh, uh, an effect obviously where big funds stepping in following those funds. And like you said, the exposure was very low. So guys are, you know, a lot of these funds get forced into uh, diversifying and, and stepping into the metals market. So as they grow from a half a percent of their fund towards one, two and 5%, um, and these pension funds step in, um, the price is going to definitely, you know, based on demand price is going to move. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then so. it moves and then it pulls more people in. Right. <laughs> so right. Yeah. now, um, let's talk about, so, so you set up the cycle. I, I, I love to have your thought process behind that. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, and so you've, you've gone through all these things, you went from cannabis and now you realized your own, you didn't have allocation to uh, gold in your own portfolio, your own family office portfolio. Um, but now you also want to move back into it on a business, um, level. And it seems like you'd mentioned earlier, one of your huge successes was a company called Norsemont and you said it was a 1.0 and now you've launched it as a 2.0. So yeah. why you uh, kind of fill me in on that? Sure. So, I mean, Norsemont 1.0, we had large copper asset exited, um, amazing team, amazing asset. Uh, and so we maintain the branding and we think it's got good branding, good following, good pedigree. And we've reassembled some of the team from Norsemont 1.0 that helped create that success. And then we've augmented it with a few other new rock stars to the fold. Uh, that we can talk about a little later on. And we've acquired this Chilean uh, gold silver asset, Northern Chile, who was actually a former producer. And, uh, you know, we've put together, I think, a stronger team than we had before, improved, with a much larger asset that can generate a much larger return as well for our investors. And, of course, with a key focus for ourselves uh, being gold and silver at this point in the cycle. Um, and I do like copper, however, but right now I think the exposure we wanted and our investors wanted, uh, was gold and silver. It was the right place to be. And it will be, I think the right place to be for the next several years here. Yeah. Now this is a company I've been doing some research on. It's been on my radar because I've been following teams around and that's how I kind of found it. And, and it looks like you bought an existing mine that was previously mined by uh, uh, shell. I think it was right. Correct. Yeah. So um, this, yeah, sorry. Go, uh, well, go ahead. Yeah. So this, this asset um, was mined by Shell and uh, Northgate Minerals. It was the third largest gold producer in Chile uh, and at its time in the early nineties, uh, made a lot of money for their owners. Uh, and obviously through the cycle, they spent a lot of money on the project and uh, we got an opportunity to acquire uh, this asset that the owner Copec, which is a very large conglomerate in Chile, uh, is, was the current owner. And now of course we are. Um, so there's a lot of data. I, we like taking advanced stage projects because we know there's already a resource in the ground and there's less risk to, uh, us to not find something when we already have it there and add value and take it through to a production situation or an exit. Um, if you'd like, I can get into some of the details of the project, but, uh, you know, well, high level. 
it, it sounds like it's kind of the same playbook where, so you already mentioned your other projects, which was kind of taking existing minds. And so yeah. I guess that's what you just said. You like taking existing minds that are kind of already proven and then, and then kind of moving them further, I guess. Correct. And in this situation, you know, we've got, the other thing is we've got the infrastructure in place. So we've got an existing infrastructure worth over 200 million that was already built for us that we didn't have to pay for and it's permitted. So it's easy to fast track this project into a production scenario. And back in the early nineties, they were just scratching the surface. They were only mining the, 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 the gold that was down, you know, 50 to 70 meters. And typically in these systems, these are epithermal gold silver systems, the gold and the silver is down at 250 to 300 meters. So it goes all the way down. So they just, kind of took the top part that was easy, mine that, made a bunch of money. Um, obviously the cycle changed, you know, gold was a couple hundred bucks and kind of, you know, other people took control of it. There was some more mining uh, by uh, Northgate, made money on it. And basically, you know, this project, uh, Copec acquired it, did some work on it. And we kind of had the opportunity to acquire this kind of before this cycle really took off um, because they are refocusing their energy on copper. And so we've, we've acquired an asset that has five and a half million ounces of gold in the ground equivalent. We have gold and silver existing infrastructure, which is worth about 200 million. There's been, uh, 1700 drill holes, uh, about 130,000 meters of drilling. That's about $50 million of drilling alone in the project. So we're buying all that data. And we're paying, you know, pennies on the dollar for that. Uh, so we're getting a big discount to market. But we also know that we have today five and a half million ounces. And as we drill deeper into the project, our target and expectations is to take that up multiple fold. And our geological targeting about 20 million ounces, we believe is here based on drilling down three or four times deeper, as well as we've only explored about 20, 25% of the project. And there is a, you know, we've got identified about an eight kilometer strike, which is the length of the project where there's another 12 targets. So we believe this project is quite robust. We believe the opportunity to increase this uh, deposit multiple fold. And so we like to have a base that we start from and grow that base. And if I'm wrong and it's not 20 and it's 15 or it's 13 or 11, it's a lot more than we had before and we de-risk that. And then we get into a situation where uh, a potential uh, mid-tier large cap company would buy us or we put it into production ourselves. And the beauty is the production cycle takes a long time. And that's the danger. Most of these projects you hear about, they're finding a lot of gold. That's great. But to get a mining permit, water permit, environmental permit, power to the project is a multi-year um, exercise. We already have all that. I can turn this thing on in six months and be producing in this environment, make cash flow. We've yeah. got the engineering team. Um, one of the, one of our key guys that's new to the team that I talked about, David Lang, he's a mining legend. Um, he's done $25 billion of M and a in the mining sector. Um, he was a uh, COO of Contana resources um, Equinox Gold, uh, he's been on with Bima Gold, uh, Endeavor Financial, Endeavor Mining, like these are all large 
mid-tier large cap mining companies. Um, he's with, he worked with Standard Bank. And so he actually put Chocolimpe, our main asset, into production back in 88 for Shell. Oh, wow. He knows. So we have a guy, yeah, he's done it before. He knows the asset, knows the data. He's an investor in our company. We have him on the team that if we want to put this back into production, who, who better is there than the guy that's turned it on in the past? Right. So that's quite a unique opportunity. And we've, we've met another gentleman, uh, Bill Katsuras is one of our key directors of our company. Um, he's raised over $4 billion uh, in the uh, mining sector, small mid cap. He's done a bunch of M&A. He's CFA, C CPA. He's one of the key guys uh, behind Endeavor Financial, Endeavor Mining. He's chairman of Wheaton Precious Metals International, which is kind of one of the largest mining companies out there. Certainly. Um, knows this stuff. So, I mean, and, and, and an investor as well. He's put his money into the company. They're all, all our team has exposure to uh, our stock and they're investors in our stock uh, and believers in, in, in the asset. So we've got a good opportunity here to uh, build out our asset, advance it to a point where it's less risk and, in the next two years, we plan to drill about 50 to 60,000 meters. And then somebody may decide to take us out. And if they don't, we can flip the switch and make a production situation. And we've got a great cash flowing opportunity for our shareholders and create a dividend stock. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's some great information. Um, a lot of that's uh, I I've read about a lot of that stuff in, in your materials that you have available. And I encourage anybody to do that. As a matter of fact, I'll link to it in the show description so you can go to their website and, and look at their whole, um, their whole proposal with all their information and whatever. But I'm curious, um, some of the questions that aren't in that information, which, uh, one, it sounds like you've got this amazing asset, uh, for, as you just said, pennies on the dollar. I think it was a $10 million, a 10 million of cash and stock, um, yeah. for a 200 million asset or whatever, but why would somebody sell the asset that cheap? I mean, they didn't think it was worth the money. So Copec is a large conglomerate. Um, they're investing close to a billion dollars in a copper project in Peru, actually, that I know well, that'll probably spit out a couple hundred million dollars a year of cash flow, and they do 22 billion in revenues. Um, this was too small for them. Mm. And also at the time we kind of structure the deal, they were exiting gold in Chile and focusing on copper. So they had a, a shift towards base metals from precious metals. And this asset they generate 50 million to their bottom line back when gold was maybe 1500. So at the time, kind of, it didn't really meet the criteria for them. And, and obviously they run a very expensive staff and, 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 uh, team and better to use that team on a much larger cash flowing asset. So we stepped in at the right time before gold really ran. Uh, we were looking at their, a couple other of their assets and this was the best one for that price. And they did participate. I mean, the, the owners of the asset own stock in our company because they believe in the upside on it. So they didn't just say, Hey, there was another bid for all cash. They didn't take that. They took our bid, which was cash and stock. So there was an upside for, some of the people involved as well. So that put I like that. I like that because that means they didn't just sell you a dud, right? They, yeah. they sold you an asset they believe in as well, which is why they decided to take, take, take the stock. If they didn't believe in it, then they just would have taken the cash and just been done. Right. Exactly. So, so I, I like yeah, that it, answer. It, yeah, no, it's, it, this is what we've done before. We typically approach a large mining companies and they have their thresholds, which are usually set pretty high. And the mid-tier space is much lower than that. So we grab their asset and build it out into a mid-cap uh, mining company and create an exit. So it's what we've done several times before. It works for us. 
And uh, it also puts together a less risky situation for our investors because there is data, there is an actual asset there. Even if I don't find another ounce of gold and I go and do some drill work and take this asset to 43101, depending on which analyst and bank you follow, they might value gold in the ground at $50, $75, $100. We have an asset here that can support uh, you know, a three to $500 million market cap, which would put our stock at, you know, eight or $10 price point. That's if we don't find another ounce of gold and we just prove up what we actually have and bring it up to, you know, uh, more, uh, the 43101 standards, more recent standards. Right. So, right. um, so yeah. Now, um, just for those that aren't familiar, let's, let, I want to fill this gap a little bit. So, um, in, in the mining sector, you kind of have like the major producers, the minor producers, and then the kind of the explorers. Um, and right now, especially with the pandemic, I mean, gold, physical gold is like a massive shortage globally, right? I mean, you have to pay massive premiums to get physical. And so it seems like there's not enough gold being produced and that might be because some are shut down because of COVID or maybe there's just too much demand. So you kind of have these major producers and then you have the kind of minor producers and explorers. And those are the ones that are ripe for being taken over by the major so they can get more gold into the market. Is that kind of how it works? Sure. No, that's exactly the case. Uh, and that's why we're here. We believe that there's going to be a cycle of M&A activity, mergers, acquisition activity, because a lot of the bigger gold miners, I mean, A, they're running out of the product that they're mining. B, for the last decade, there's been no money put into exploration work. So right. there's not been a lot of new discoveries for them to acquire. So we do believe there will be uh, a little bit of a, not a panic, but, but we believe there will be uh, a huge... M&A activity over the next 12, 24 months. And uh, we think that uh, we'll be well positioned. By that time, we'll prove out our deposit and we'll be in a position to create an exit for our investors, which we've done before. Everybody likes to talk about an exit, but we've done it. We know what we're doing. And the beauty is, if we don't get that exit and gold's moving, I mean, typical cash costs in South America and Chile is about $8.50 an ounce. Gold sitting at $1,500 an ounce, we're making money hand over fist. $2,500, it's almost too good to be true, and the profit margins would be significant. So we do have the ability to turn this on. We don't have, if we don't find the right buyer, we will go into production and generate cash flow for our investors. So we have a win either which way. Um, and I think that's kind of why we like this asset quite a bit, and we see. Um, this being a much lower risk situation for our investors with a big payback. Uh, what, what are the risks? Well, the, the risks are that gold price, if you don't believe gold's, you know, if you, if you think gold's going to go sub a thousand, that that could impact a project like this. Uh, but I, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, maybe not even in our generation, but I don't think that's going to happen over the next decade at least. Um, and a lot of the gold projects that you see out there, um, they use feasibility study prices of 13, 1300 to 1400 range. So you, your project needs to be feasible at 1350 to make, to be considered financeable and profitable. And our project would be, you know, our cash costs would be 850, 900. So at 1350, 1400, we'd be making money. Um, so, I mean, for our situation, it's, you know, 
the only thing that could happen is, is uh, really gold prices dipping below that threshold where no one would fund a production situation. Uh, which so the, so the, so you're past the exploration phase. So you're not the risk of not finding gold isn't really there. No, we're a brownfields asset. So we're advanced stage. There is gold there. Geologically, there is more gold there. I mean, I would go on you know on the record here. Uh, you know, if I don't find any more gold, maybe I gotta throw in the towel and call it a day. Like, there's definitely a lot more gold here. How much there is, you know, God's gonna determine that. My geologists, but yeah. realistically. There's a lot more gold based on the modeling that we have and our geological uh, knowledge and data and our engineering. Um, how much there is, that's what we want to prove up. And that's where we want to spend, you know, 20, 20, 25 million dollars, drill out the project. And whether we double, triple or quadruple the size, there will be more, uh, which is great because that makes us more susceptible to being acquired by a major because we have a bigger resource and a longer lifespan in our mind and hopefully higher grades as well. Yeah. So for us, we don't see a lot of risk in, in, in this project uh, outside of, you know, things that we can't control. Force measure COVID could shut the world down, but I think, you know, we're learning to adapt and we've changed. People are taking precautions and measures. There's talk about vaccines and treatments, but that'll take time. But I think that, you know, COVID are things like act of God that we can't really control, but the price of gold in the environment we're in. Yeah. What about, um, what about political risk? So that's, there's a big narrative that's being pushed. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it, but uh, this whole uh, mining in countries that don't have dollar swap lines with the U S um, and there's a narrative that, you know, there's a, a extra risk because of that. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Sure. Um, what's the political risk in Chile? So Chile uh, is the number one global copper producer in the world. So they're very mining centric, mining friendly. Their GDP is dependent on mining. The government understands mining. Um, they're a top 10 Fraser Institute uh, for investment. So they're, they're in the top 10 countries to invest in mining. So they're a pretty stable country. They're dependent on mining. Um, we don't see it internally as a risk, but of course, you know, even mining in the United States or Canada carries some risk as well. Sure. Um, so that, that, that could be somewhat of a risk, but uh on a, on a, on a scale of one to 10, you know, I'd call the risk one, you know, it's very low, low risk situation politically there because their country wouldn't survive without mining and the revenues it generates. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. Now um, you've managed to move through these cycles. We talked about from tech to copper, to silver, to, uh, to cannabis, now to gold. I'm just curious. Um, I get asked quite a bit and I, I haven't really been paying attention to it. So that's why I want to ask a mining, uh, expert here about uranium. Um, yeah. it's, I, I did a recent video talking about, um, going to renewable energy and it seems like, uh, uranium is, is maybe our only chance. And it seems very hated right now, probably because of Fukushima and whatever, um, in your mining circles and the cycles that you're looking at. I mean, what do you think about that? So, um, I'm not an expert in uranium, but, uh, I am a big believer in the space. I do believe we need clean, renewable energy. Um, I think there's some challenges with uh, wind power being having to be subsidized, solar power having to be subsidized. I think we're not there yet, but you know, it's unfortunate what happened with Fukushima and, and that kind of set the world upside down on uranium. 
but I don't see us escaping it. And like you said, it's down and out. And I think because of our conversation, I mean, I bought a few years ago talking to Rick Rule. He kind of thought uranium was beat up and good time to buy. I did buy some. Uh, and, and based on our discussions today, I'm going to kind of re-educate myself in the space and look at putting some money in there because I don't think uh, as a society in, in Western world, I don't think we can get away from uranium. Right now, that's the cleanest, uh, easiest, renewable energy, low cost. The price point of uranium is you know, falling off the map. Um, but I do think there, you know, that, that could be a big comeback kit here. Yeah. Uh, it might be a bit early, but, um, you know, I, I do think that, uh, there's no ways around, uh, the uranium market. I'm a big believer in uranium. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm, I'm kind of agreeing exactly with you. I think it might still be a little bit early. I know in California we've shut down two and we have one more um, nuclear reactor running, but it's scheduled to be shut down. Um, and then, you know, Germany has been shutting down their nuclear reactors. So it seems like we're still almost down trending from it. So maybe we need to kind of wait for that bottom. Maybe it's a little early. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. That's why I was, I was asking your opinion. So I appreciate you sharing. Yeah, no, you're, you're probably uh, bang on there. Maybe it's a bit too soon, but sometimes investing a bit too soon, like the Warren Buffett principle, when nobody wants it, it may not be a bad time to to buy it. Yeah. I'm in Southern California. I'm a surfer. So I typically like to try to ride the waves. I don't try to create yeah. the waves. So I'll wait for the wave to show up and then I'll hop on it. Oh, that's so, smart. Uh, not, not a professional knife catcher as they say. Yes. <laughs> um, now you, we also talked about tech, obviously you, you worked and kind of lived and worked through that, that 97, 98 um, internet boom. So you, you get the tech cycles and all that. I know you met, met Vitalik Buter and had the chance for Ethereum. Yeah. I'm curious as a gold guy, what do you think about Bitcoin? Sure. I mean, I, I see uh, Bitcoin uh, has been doing very well over the last year. Um, I think it is a store of wealth and it, it easily uh, movable. Um, the younger generation, like our kids, for example, yeah. uh, that are more tech savvy than we think we, we think we're tech savvy. Um, they're earlier adopters to uh, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. So I, I do believe that you're seeing a flight to safety. And part of that is, you know, gold and silver is more of the old school guys. And I think the younger generations crypto and even, you know, guys like you and I probably own some crypto as well. Yeah. Uh, besides our kids. So I think, you know, Bitcoin is probably a great store of wealth and uh, that's why it's getting a lot of traction uh, over the course of the last little while here. And so I think, yeah, you can put that in the same uh, category as gold and silver as well. Yeah. The finite, yeah. finite uh, amount of Bitcoin out there. And, um, people are not wanting to hold currencies all around the world. So, yeah, it's uh, interesting. You talk about the different generations, you know, I've, I've kind of thrown out like my grandparents would never own uh, Bitcoin and my grandkids would probably never own gold. You know, you kind of have these generations as it shifts, you know? Um, and then I think also I, I was, I heard yesterday some polls and they were talking about how um, it was talking about this upcoming U S presidential election cycle. And they're talking about um, the polls that were ran on people's uh, distrust of the media and people's distrust of the government. And they're both at like record highs. Like I think less, you know, it's like a 20% approval rating of media and government. Um, wow. And I think that leads to 
obviously also not trusting the government, not trusting the, the money, the banking system. And then people want to buy gold and Bitcoin, right? <laughs> no, for sure. And I think that, uh, fortunately the United States and Canada, their currencies are well regarded and you know, they're printing currencies as they need it, but other countries couldn't do anything like that. So, uh, and, and I think a lot of people have, like you said, there's, there is big mass distrust of what's going on, media, media manipulation, governments. There's a lot of frustration around the world and people are a little scared. People don't know what's going on. And COVID has really created a big curveball for all that. And I think, yeah, uh, I think it makes sense to uh, different generations storing their wealth in, in different mediums, you know, for you and I, we're kind of, like you said, caught in the middle there, gold and silver is great. And, and, and Bitcoin is great, but good point you made is like our grandkids, it's like, what's gold, what's silver. It's going to be, you know, stored in crypto, everything will be on their phones, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, man, what a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time that you have just to kind of walk through that with me. And, um, man, I, I love, I love the perspective that you've shared. So I think, thank you so much. I'm going to link to, um, I'll link to uh, the Norsemont uh, company information. If anybody wants to see that. So I'll link to that in the show. Is there anywhere else they should uh, go to follow you? I don't know if you're on social media or Anywhere else you want to? Um, I'm not, I'm not as active on social media as I should be. I mean, I've got a LinkedIn account uh, and then, you know, I've got Instagram cause I'm forced by my kids and family, but uh, <laughs> really, you know, at norsemontmining.com, our website has data on our company. Um, and obviously you can go on to either Yahoo or Bloomberg or Stockwatch or any of those and, and enter our ticker symbol uh, and, and take a look at the company. Um, uh, you'll probably put together uh, that information. Now that was uh, well, actually that, that leads me to one more question as I was wrapping it up. Sorry. Uh, but uh, so, so right now it's, it's a, it's like an OTC stock, like a pink sheet, right? Uh, we're listed on the uh, OTC QB. Okay. Uh, under NRRSF. Uh, and we're also listed on the Canadian stock exchange uh, as NOM, which was the original NOM ticker symbol for Norsemont that I sold 1.0. Oh, nice. so we have the same name, same ticker symbol, even in Canada. So uh, it's quite well recognized. Yeah. And we are, we are planning to list the company on a more senior exchange. Uh, our CFO cool want that I didn't talk about typically does NASDAQ deals. So he's working towards getting us uh, listed on the NASDAQ because we think that's a better audience for us, better access to capital, better, better liquidity. So we are planning to move to uh, that more senior exchange this year. Uh, and, uh, so yeah, that was going to be my question. So, I mean, you started talking about, you know, doing some mining and, and, and it wouldn't be that hard to get the stock up to seven, eight bucks a share. I'm just curious at what point does that, you know, penny stock OTC stock jump onto, uh, an exchange is, is, is somewhat of a dependent on how big the market cap is. Uh, there's a couple of different criteria, um, on in Canada, it doesn't have such a price barrier or market cap barrier so much because where we're at right now, we're sitting at about a hundred million. Um, typically for the NASDAQ, the minimum is $4 us typically. So we have to see uh, our stock trading at about $4 us from where we are today. I think we're at about a dollar 80 us. Uh, and, uh, I think that, you know, based on the drilling that we're about to embark on and some of the work and news that's going to come out, 
and getting the word out through people like yourself. I really appreciate it. We really haven't told the story. It's been more internal people, value added people investing alongside us and some very close funds to ourselves. So we're just starting to get the word out to the retail as well as uh, daily. I'm doing institutional meetings where they're coming into the market. So you can see our prices moving up a little bit. Our liquidity is increasing. So as we get traction and people realize, wait a second here, um, this is worth a hell of a lot more than it's trading at. And they figure out the reasons why. So I think we're getting a bit of market traction here and uh, you know, hopefully we'll get our share price up. And, and uh, I think we plan to be listed on the NASDAQ before the end of the year. Nice. That's awesome. That's good news. Well, I'll definitely be uh, rooting for you and watching and uh, I'll, I'll stay in touch. It was, it was so great. I appreciate you taking, taking the time today. Yeah. I appreciate you exposing me and uh, definitely look forward to giving you an update and, and for you to follow up and feel free anytime to uh, uh, ask me any questions. I'd love to come back on your show and provide an update after we get some work done here. All right, Mark. Thanks so much. We'll talk soon. Perfect. Thanks a lot.